0: You are listening to a Mint Production brought to you by HT Smartcast. Hi, I'm Satya Suntanam from Mint's personal finance team. If you have been following our recent episodes, you will have noticed that we are catching up with a few of the registered investment advisors in India who have completed about a decade in this profession. These RIAs. Registered investment advisors provide investment advice on paying some fee. RAAs are different from financial product distributors who earn some commission from companies for recommending their products to investors. In this episode, I interacted with Loai Nablaki, Managing Director and CEO of International Money Matters Private Limited, which is a SEBI-registered RAA firm. Lawai has been in this industry advising clients about investments and personal finance for more than two decades. He shares his interesting journey over the years and how attending financial planning conferences abroad has helped him bring high standards to his advisory services in India. Let's invite him. By the way, on a side note, when I got on a call with Mr. Lawai, I realized we both are not in India on the day. To my surprise, we were both in the US on the day of call and coincidentally in the same city, the beautiful Boston. And we both traveled back to India almost at the same time. What are the odds, right? Okay, now without any further ado, let's begin the episode. Hi, welcome to Why Not Mint Money a personal finance podcast where we help you understand basic money concepts and share strategies for you to build your wealth. So let's get started
1: on your money journey.
0: Hello, Lohai. Hi.
1: Hi, Satya. Uh How is it in Boston? I've got used to it. I used to avoid uh, coming to the US between, uh, you know, November and March. But now that my daughter is here and she had a baby two years ago uh, in November, there was really no choice but to come during snow. So, now I've got used to it.
0: That's nice, that's nice. This podcast is about the journey that you uh, had as a REA in the last uh, one year. With REA regulations coming into picture, we just wanted to understand how it has changed your uh, way of approaching the clients uh, and everything. So, um, shall we start with, uh, you know, what was your career like before uh, becoming an REA?
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, I am, you know, I'm born, brought up in Mumbai, studied also there and did my graduation, post-graduation from Mumbai, worked in Mumbai for a while. Um, and then I got an offer to, so my, my journey after doing an MBA in finance has always obviously been in finance, but largely in corporate finance. Um, so lucky, I was lucky to work in of larger brands, larger firms, uh, such as Nelco, then Tipla. Uh then I got an opportunity to work in Bangalore with uh, Microland, uh, went back to Mumbai to work with a financial services company Alpic, um, then moved back to Bangalore to in the same company and then joined Dotcom. The .com, it was India.com. Uh, except for maybe about a year in the financial services and then a year and a half with the dot-com, where I was uh, essentially involved or running personal finance. That's when my interest to personal finance came in. The previous 15 odd years was all uh, experience in corporate finance. And that uh, I sort of liked in the sense that I found um there didn't seem to be anybody who was doing things in the interest of the customer. Uh, and no one, of course, was trying to educate the customer. So those were a couple of things that I felt were missing. And when I effectively lost my job in the dot-com, it was uh, a plan to bring down the staff strength uh, with the dot-com crisis in 2001 from 125 to 25 people in our organization. Uh, you know, I was among that lot of people who was without a job. So look for one. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was tough in, you know, just post dot com crash. Uh, but I had helped a few colleagues to start investing. And in fact, they asked me that, are you going to start something of your own? And I said, no, i have worked 18 years in corporate and used to salary on the first of every month so no no I'm going to look for a job Uh, but because the job market was tough it took about five weeks to get a job offer but in the meantime I started helping uh, his colleagues of mine with their settlements that they got and you know just sort of I think uh, realized that that's what I really wanted to do.
0: I understand. Uh, when you said about uh, losing a job in 2009, uh,
1: 2001,
0: to, 2001, 2001, sorry. Not yeah. uh, personally, were you prepared uh, to have a job loss or do you, do you had enough uh, emergency corpuses uh, or do you have em- enough emergency fund uh, set up at that point of time for your, uh, you know, well-being? <laughs>
1: So I, I I mean, those terms, frankly, are all, were all new. I mean, I don't think they existed in those days. Sure. Um, but the good thing was that, you know, I had managed to repay my car loan and my home loan um, while I was with the dot-com. And so when I lost a job, there was no, I mean, obviously there's pressure to, uh, and etc., but there was no pressure that I had to pay an EMI or I'd be out of a home or out of a you know vehicle etc that I think helped a hell of a lot and I was I mean I was prepared in my mind that it would take three to six months to start earning enough to meet expenses and maybe another six months to start saving money uh, so I was prepared for the long haul so to that extent I think it was fine
0: I understand. I understand. But uh, what motivated you to completely get into the uh, personal finance uh, segment?
1: Yeah, so obviously not easy, not not a choice, I think I, I sort of made willfully. But the good thing was that in my dot-com days, there was, uh, you know, we used to uh, have the senior management talk to the team every 3-4 weeks, my turn would come. Uh, Because every Monday morning there was a full staff meeting and um, uh, I sort of decided that I will take the stance of telling them that they need to start saving money and investing. So first sort of session would be on save money, don't leave it in your bank, put it in a liquid fund. Next time would say, okay, now debt, now equity and so on and so forth. And a few people had you know, after the meetings would come up and say, you know, I've worked for five years, seven years. I have, in fact, one person told me I have 25 pairs of shoes, but I don't have any savings. So uh, in those days, uh, mutual funds would take cash. So I would, I remember asking her, I said, you have 500 rupees in your pocket. She said, yes. I said, here is the form, time this and start doing SIP <laughs> uh, with 500 rupees. So, I mean, I think I've moved into that I will educate people and get them to invest in the dot-com, which helped. Um, I think the one other thing that little backstory was that in when I was with the financial services uh, company and we were starting to sell mutual funds, um, some of the funds had just come to India and one of the foreign funds um, gave me a questionnaire and said, you know, write down the age of your younger child. Uh, and they calculated that this is what you needed to save slash invest every month to educate. Sure. Uh, and I looked at that number and it was more than what I was earning, what they wanted me to save. And I said, <laughs> "Oh no! I wish somebody had told me 10 years ago what to do. Um, and I think that also played a role in deciding that in the path that I would go through, I would keep education, not using the jargon, telling people in simple language, uh, you know, where to invest and how to go about doing it. Um, uh, that I would sort of do uh, uh, and and make sure that uh, that sort of one was one idea.
0: So uh, you've been in this field from 2001 and you've also seen 2008 and 2009 crisis. How is it in India when it comes to investing? By individuals uh, after the 2008 nine crisis, uh, did, ha- did it has any impact on how they invest? Did they start using the services of financial uh, advisors more, whether it's in the form of distributors or uh, you know in the advising form?
1: So um, I think from first, I'll tell you about me that you know I think I was doing. Elements of advice right from the beginning or elements of planning right from the beginning, it just got more and more formal as, let's say, CFP came to India or as RIA regulation came in. But 2008-9 was a great learning period because in, people would talk about and I had exposure to uh, risk profiling, but I never believed in it. And I felt that, oh, you know, risk profiling is just... uh, Method by which you will get some answers. And if I am in the in the wrong mood, I have woken up the wrong side of the bed, or you know I'm not feeling well. I will answer things differently from when I am in a good mood. So I didn't feel that the need to do this. But I remember one incident where somebody who I knew from uh, from a while, you know, 15-20 years, had um, you know was investing through us and. Somewhere in 2007, uh, markets were really hot and running up and uh, this particular client was at somewhere around 60% in equity and his refrain all the time with me was, why don't you make it 90%? Uh, Markets are really good, we should just keep increasing equity because there is going to be great return.
0: Right. Uh,
1: so, with a lot of reluctance and holding back, we got this person from 60 to, say, 70. Um, after the crisis, because, you know, portfolios were down 50, 30 to 50 percent, um, I remember conversation with him saying, uh, uh, you know, Lovar, you know me from so long. How could you do this? How could you put so much allocation to equity? And I said, oh, you know, this is a uh, wake up call that yeah, the
0: yeah. person
1: who is saying I am willing to take risk is actually mm. not and yeah. then I got deeper into risk profiling and after that date we really got very very uh, strict with using risk profiling and scientific risk profiling as a method to determine how much risk a person should take uh, I also felt that every time there is a crisis uh uh, and one year after this 2008 crisis hit, when I looked at my say, top 10 clients, I found four of the top 10 were new clients. And frankly, we were not in that mode uh, that, you know, we wanted only clients with higher asset size or anything. We said as long as people are willing to spend the time, explain to us what they want and uh, you know, will listen to our advice. you are happy to take them on, and they are individual
0: top clients in a sense, in the form of inside, uh, inside. Okay, in in, uh, in
1: form of about in, the things. Yeah, at that stage, sure. And then we realized that that those were people who had uh, either received bad advice or not taken any advice, and therefore, I realized, and maybe we've seen this every time there has been some sort of crisis or situational markets are not uh, you know going upward in one direction uh, that people find the need for advice and advisors at that time even everything is going well you say okay I'll you know throw a dart and I'll get 20% or I'll get 35% doesn't matter to me I whether I take advice or not why should I unnecessarily take advice I'll make that later. as soon as things start going out is when people find the need for advice. So that, yes, grew uh, quite a bit uh, post-2008. I
0: understand. So the importance of asset allocation has also, um, you know, started the conversations about asset allocation and, uh, you know, people were also willing to understand about this process and the concept, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, very, very true. And uh, I think one of the early learnings was you know, I think it was 2009 or 10, if I remember, or 8 or 9, we just after the crisis where a lot of mutual funds started offering feeder, uh, international feeder funds in India. And we also felt that, you know, clients should allocate money and diversify not have everything in uh, rupees or in India, even if goals were all in India. So we'd encourage them. But in the initial phase, the takeoff was slow. Uh, 2013, uh, when there was a rupee crisis, and the rupee fell from, I think it was 55 to 69 in eight, nine months. Um, it was almost a 20-25% fall. And that year, Indian markets didn't do well, uh, but U.S. markets did very well. We have some 25% return in U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh People looked at and looked at those US funds that they had invested in and said, Oh wow, 50% in one year. 25% was market, 25% was currency. And then they wanted to put more money there. And then at that stage, you have to do the reverse and tell them, No, no, hang on, this is not the time to go and go right. overboard. Right.
0: Mm.
1: But allocation, yes, became very, very important uh, around that time. And um, like I I, I do think that media has played a good role in this because creating awareness uh, has been one of the reasons why people have understood this. Because, you know, I can stand on the rooftop and say, you know, I'm a great financial planner, a great advisor, but there's always the feeling that, oh, there's a bias about it because obviously there is some commercial interest that uh, you have because and that's why you're saying it. So, it was very good to get that sort of support from media. Good to know, good to know.
0: Uh, what is the overall uh, AUA-like uh, low No.
1: Currently, it's around just under 1,800 crore.
0: Okay, great. Understand.
1: Sure. Now, we are
0: in the US. Uh, are you planning any visits to the clients?
1: This visit, this time, it has not happened. Uh, I actually came in for a few days of a training program with a fund in Boston and then fell ill So and then, you know, heard of a viral outbreak in the US, etc. So, um, and I took a while to recover. My voice is still not fully back. Okay. There were a few days when my voice was totally shut and I couldn't speak. So, I did plan to travel. I do normally, and I say, okay, normally let me go back. Pre-pandemic, I would come twice a year and spend three to four weeks. Um, In the US, um, one of the times would typically be combined with a conference, could be an FPA conference, could be a CFT conference, um, anything in the financial, personal finance space. So that would be three, four days. And then I would pretty much travel the length and breadth of US to uh, meet up with clients, but not happen so often after the pandemic. So hopefully next year onwards, it might start.
0: Uh, How did the learning, uh, you know, about the subject uh, for personal finance has really helped your business or uh, your views on personal finance uh, back in India?
1: See, one thing is that, you know, uh, when you hear uh, and listen to some of these, you, the first and foremost, I would say when I first started coming to US, I felt, oh, you know, US is 20, 30 years ahead of uh, us in terms of, let's say, financial planning. Uh, when it started there and when it started in India. So it was 70s in the US, it's 2000 in India. So I thought, oh, great, I will learn from them. But I, what I found is that they were facing pretty much the same issues as us. Just that they might have faced it five years, seven years earlier, some of them. So, you know, knowing what sort of, uh, pot, you know, potholes to avoid was a good uh, way to, you know, figure it out. Second, you would understand what is the, you know, regulations in some of these countries. So well before uh, RIA regulations came in, I knew that, for example, in South Africa, they required people to maintain uh, records of all communication to clients. And I also realized that it was a big advantage because after a few years, clients forget that, oh, this was the situation and in this situation, you recommended certain things. They hold you accountable three years later saying, oh, how come you put it over there? At that stage, it was all fine. It's just that some events happened now in the last one month, which caused everything to change. So you needed to document. So that learning I had and I said, oh, great, then I should start documenting. So we had started documenting and keeping the records uh, pretty early on.
0: So, how did things change over the last years, Lawai, uh, either in terms of investor behavior about the fees or the investment and also your practice, um, you know, the business? How did it I think process? a lot of
1: process. Uh, I think a lot of process definitely came into being uh, on one side. we uh, became a lot more, even though it meant, you know, initially when the regulation came that you had to have a separate division for doing execution we actually created that separate people were identified who will do the execution and you can earn commission on those products because in those days, like, like I said, initially it was not direct plan alone. Um, and I, I think to that extent, getting people certified in, among the advisors uh, in the team going through the either CFP exam initially or 10, and 10, B now, um, it's helped you know, to make sure that everybody is at at least a particular standard and level. Um, From the client standpoint, I think awareness has gone up tremendously for the client. Uh, So they now ask for this, uh, you know, a direct plan or a cheaper plan and the cost and why is there a cost and how can you justify it? So all those things are also possibly good. And I think the regulator has had to keep pace with, you know, changes in market and volatility and protecting the customer. So, I think all of that has moved. I It just sometimes, sometimes it feels that, you know, the regulation has come too fast, too, too strong. Uh, and particularly, you know, for me, when I would keep comparing it with, let's say, a country like U.S., the regulation is, has been always far stronger in India than in the U.S., but If I compare it with, say, South Africa, Netherlands, UK, Australia, then I feel, okay, great, we are on par with them in terms of the thickness or the controls uh, with the regulations. And that just helps the business to be much stronger. I think if you had a longer-term vision of this business, then all these changes are very positive. If you are all focused on how much profit you want to make this quarter, this month, then no, it is the problem um but i think ultimately overall it's a it's a good sort of positive change that has happened
0: yeah yeah i mean uh, how many clients did you have back then uh, in 2010 to 13 and you know what is the client count now as of now or when, when did so, it actually turn into a, a corporate uh,
1: thing um, corporate was 2005 itself uh, so in uh, I'm trying to think that in 2008, 9, I know, uh, the year of the crisis, uh, you know, between, um, actually, between, yeah, between 8 and 9, our assets actually grew uh, because we realized more people needed advice. Like I said, at that stage, we were, I think, 125 crores of assets in 2009. We are at almost eighteen hundred crores now. So obviously that has grown. Uh I think client base wise. So it's a I would say we, we count clients a little differently. I can do a client count of people who are who are clients and who have some investment with us without zero balances. We have maybe about thousand odd clients, but key paying families are around four hundred. Um So we look at the fee-paying family number uh, because there are some distribution clients. Some people who say, no, no, we don't mind, you know, having higher cost. We don't want to pay fee. We want to make distribution. So we have segregated that service and said, okay, this will be a little more, uh, sort of little less uh, touch sort of service. So light touch type of service, not as frequent and not as hands-on as the advisory service. So, we have some clients in distribution as well, but client families, key paying families, about 400 now. I don't know. And you're asking what was it in 2013? Uh, 13. My guess is that it may have been less than 200, is my guess.
0: And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you've been managing money of uh, other people. L- your proudest memory of serving a client and what have you learned managing their money?
1: So, uh, I think a few cases I can remember. Uh, one, uh, you know, particularly let's say an MNC client who has moved geography. So, uh, and he's been with the same company From 2002, I think he's been a client, or 2003. Uh, He was in India, in Bangalore. Then he moved to, uh, I think, Indonesia for some time. Then he went to the US, then came back to India, then went to South Korea. Then he was to go to Japan, but he said, no, I'm coming back to India. So every time going through and making changes for him on, uh, you know, tax tax status, bank account, um, NRO, back to resident type of investment, reporting when is in these different countries. For That has been uh, very positive. And in fact, I remember one of the times asking him, I said, you know, you have, I mean, you, you don't have to use the name, but I think Deloitte or ENY, one of those, has one of the company um, form which helped, helped them when they move. So I said, you know, those guys are there, why don't you take their help for, you know, all of these tax, etc. And I remember him telling uh, telling me that, you know, I'm at, you know, really very senior level, but those people are there only to protect my company's interest. I have to need, I need somebody to protect mine. So please look at it and continue doing this work for us. So that's been uh, a big positive. One other situation I remember where uh, a client had, had um, you know come to us to do a financial plan, he was based in Mumbai, um, and when we did his plan, we kept sort of going back and forth because his goals were not getting achieved. So we thought, oh, there is something which is inflated in his goal or something, in, you know, is not shared in terms of investment, that's why it's not happening. But at the end, we realized that no, it, it's just not happening, he has to earn more uh, to meet his goals. So and he was a co-founder of that firm. So we said, why don't you go back and talk to your firm saying you need this uh, amount of money which needs to get paid extra to you, whether they give it to you every year as a bonus or you get an you know increase in salary monthly, do that because you know you spent almost five, seven years with the firm, you're doing well, etc. And after you had the conversation, they were not willing to do this or they could not do this. He actually left that job and moved to the Middle East uh, on another job so that he could meet all his goals because there he was able to earn more and save more. Uh, Awesome. So, I mean, these couple of things stand out. I'm sure there must be more, but these are the top two coming to my mind at the moment.
0: Sure, sure. Any learning from managing other people's money? As you started this conversation with saying that, um, you know, one of your clients had said that they are ready to take the risk but not willing to in fact.
1: So so I think lots of learning I, I think the learning has been with every single case that you meet a uh, client there has been a learning um, and and I think uh, a few sort of things that I find is that one I have learned not to bring my bias into uh, into the equation. Because in the beginning, you read some theoretical stuff and you believe very strongly about it because you read, you know, there's a big confirmation bias. So once you believe in something, you will find all articles which are supporting you uh, in that and you only read those. Uh, and somewhere I, I learned this a lot from my CFT program, actually, the Financial Transitionist program. Uh, I remember in one of the first sessions I attended, uh, there was a particular case or situation and, you know, we were 15, 20, 20, 20 of us in the room and they were asking for responses. They reacted in some way and uh, the, the the psychologist in the program actually turned around and said, Sulawai, what your bias that you're bringing when you're making this response? Uh, and if you can think a little and remove that bias and now think of a response, what is it? And it was different. Uh, and I realized that, oh, so my bias is coming into uh, play, which is really absolutely coming, you know, what should I say, coming is a bottleneck when I'm dealing with clients. I have to remove that. So, yeah, yeah. I think the, your own bias is one yeah. Uh, piece. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And yeah. then
1: the openness to listen to other people's views. Uh, hmm. I think mm-hmm. that is both are maybe interconnected. Yeah. Um, also, the the listening part came in from that, again, from the CFT program where there's actually a session on listening and there's an examination on listening. Um, you know, I, And I realized that the Indians, we tend to jump into people's uh, conversations. And uh, while they're speaking, you're saying, you know, you're not listening, you're starting to respond and say, ah, I know what you're going to say, here's my response to that. And just coming and attending programs in the U.S. just taught me to be patient and say, okay, let's just listen and be open-minded about the listening. And, you know, just do active listening. And maybe you don't have to respond to everything and react to everything and say, no, here is my viewpoint, I have to give that to you.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, it all comes with a package. Uh, So could you also share one regret, uh, something that you recommended in good faith, but you're not happy with?
1: Yeah, definitely. There are quite a few, but I think what stands out is ILFs. Um, You know, we put money in ILFs uh, at that stage, saying, "Okay, great. We want people want something with security and AAA, and but little higher return." And it was so obvious later on that you know if there are equivalent products and one is you know getting a higher rate, then obviously there is some risk which is not. Which we are not seeing or not visualizing. So that I think was a mistake, and we realized that you know having control over single product exposure is very important. So maybe the learning from ILFS helped us helped us a lot in Templeton case. Because we were continuously seeing underlying and we were able to exit most of our clients' holdings in all the Templeton debt schemes, maybe six months before the a stoppage of investment happened. The only place where we did not expect that they would stop was ultra-short bond, so that money remained. But I think we had, God knows, my guess is we had, or my calculation was maybe we had 60-70 crores of money in Templeton schemes, and at the end, when they closed those schemes, we had some 7 crores or 8 crores, most of it in ultra-short bond. Uh, So we were able to pick that because we realize that single product exposure or single instrument exposure, organizational exposure is the biggest risk people take. So, diversifying becomes very, very important. So, yeah, that's, uh, I would say, a big, big regret. It still shows up on client portfolio saying this is the value of ILFO, but it's zero. Mm. So, we keep showing it because we like to be transparent. And, you know, it's not yet signed off and delivered as zero. It's We keep telling them it's likely to be close to zero, but we'll keep it in the list till we get a closure on (laughs) it.
0: Great. Sure. And uh, yeah, do you take your own advice, financial advice for your personal investments?
1: Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, I think one part is that in one way, no, in the sense that, you know, clients ask me, have you invested in See, you know, my goals, my risk profile, my money availability may be very different from yours. It cannot be the same. But yeah, I do believe everybody needs an advisor um, because the only way reasons why you don't need an advisor is if a you understand finance very well, you have lots of time, and you have full control on your emotion, which I think if you are is difficult if you are a human being. Uh, so I follow. I mean, I have a planner from my team who have like a planner and tells me what to do with my investment uh so periodically they'll review a plan we they will present it to me and my wife together uh you know we've, we've been sharing with our children this is our status this is where we have uh our money this is what you will get now this is what is later this is where the the data is stored so yeah for sure do follow that advice um, I think it's important that I take is every individual needs a financial advisor I
0: understand
1: yeah. um, a lot of people think that I need it when I have a lot of money a lot of people uh, but I think that every certainly for those who have less money than their goals they need an advisor because they need to get there right even for people who have more money than their goals at least for the goals portion they need an advisor the extra money, they can do what they want. They can put it in horse racing, private equity, under the mattress, whatever. But uh, there is a need to have this because I think it's getting more and more complex. Being aware about uh, implications of you know different markets and products. And more importantly, on emotion. I mean, <clears throat> frankly, uh, we are able to At least call out in advance without worry that, no, no, right now is not a great time because we think ABC is happening, so be in a safe place. And then when the thing turns, we have been also early to call out and say, no, now we can start taking a little bit of risk. All going within the risk profile, but surely you should uh, do that. I think that's important to do. And so yes, I do follow advice. Great.
0: Sure. So, uh, how many uh, financial advisors do you have in your group?
1: So, as a team, we have 14 in the third. All across India. Yeah, five different locations uh, in India at the moment. Um oh, yeah. Sorry? Which are? Five different locations? Uh-huh, which are Bombay, Bangalore, Delhi, Chennai and Hyderabad. I understand. Okay. And, and what we do is from these uh, locations, we have also earmarked people who are, one of them looks at clients in US and Europe because that has a similar sort of approach. Um, Exclusively? Exclusively. Okay. Uh, One looks after clients in Middle East um, and one, so that Middle East person also looks at Hyderabad because Hyderabad is a smaller sort of market for us at the moment. Okay. Um, And one person who is in Delhi Also, looks at clients from Far East, uh, Asia, Pacific, all that. So, Singapore, Australia, Hong Kong, Malaysia, that that area.
0: Understand. Okay. Now, um, you know, have you thought about succession planning for your company? Um, You know, because though it's a private limited company, it is still, you know, you know, significantly run by you. Uh, So, how do you think about it, you know, when you want to really retire and uh, enjoy your silver years?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, my belief is that I don't think I want to retire. I want to, uh, you know, die with my boots on. But I obviously, I cannot be at the same pace and and all of that. Uh, So, I I did have uh, the TVS group, Gopal Chenevasan uh, uh, sort of family which took a majority stake in our business in 16 oh, because okay. I did believe that uh, it was important to have like a continuity sort of planning etc in place sure um, however what has happened is that they are you, not could you tell the uh, percentage yeah they are, they are majority they took a majority at that stake Okay. Okay. So they are majority yeah, even now. Maybe
0: um, about eighty percent or seventy-five.
1: No, 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 no. no, no. Uh, around sixty percent. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So they took fifty-two, and then later on we put in some more money. So they also put, I also put in some more money for a little bit of growth. But so their stake is around sixty okay, percent. Um,
0: okay.
1: And and the whole uh, idea is that you know we have. a uh, a a succession plan in place that you know who is going to take over what is the sort of running of the business but we are evaluating uh, together with them in terms of what is the way forward Uh, because they from a day to day point of view they are not involved in the business they are involved more from a control review, bouncing of ideas you know that sort of strategic direction type of thing Um, so we are working out how this whole thing is going to land, uh, but I do think that, uh, and and primarily I think this happened more because of two things. One, I had spent 18 years, like I mentioned, with different corporates, so for me, continuity, etc., was very important. Um, and as the clients grew and even the team grew, so we are 50 plus people in the team. As there are too many, just too many people dependent on this business? So we should have a continuity plan so that's important um I, I don't think anyone should work with without a continuity plan and frankly you need alternatives because things change over time um, and therefore you know having the right sort of landing is important
0: right and the rei regulations uh i'm sure definitely helped uh, in uh, bringing out the importance of the financial advisors uh, in the last uh, 10 years and i'm sure it will uh, you know continue to have uh, better uh, regulations around it um, for the for the for the better uh, growth of the REA industry but what's the single most uh, important reform that you think should happen in the REA routes?
1: i mean uh, my my thought has always been and i've been saying this now for possibly a decade and i think at some point it will get done um because i can see this happening where products are you know multi-layer there are very simple products uh, it could be mutual funds with uh, simple open-ended index whatever type of investing uh two complicated products could be pms aif private equity etc so If you can segregate these and have one, two, three levels of these products, uh, investors also need to get segregated between, you know, somebody who's knowledgeable and who's not. It could be based on size of client. It could be based on some uh, qualification, something like that. I mean, there is this concept of accredited investor which has come in, uh, which is linked to size, net worth, etc. And then third is on the intermediary. So if you segregate and say somebody who is, let's say, in a tier 2 city or a tier 3 city and, you know, just is getting people to start the saving or the investing habit. uh, There, I don't need very high qualifications to be able to explain to them. But as long as I control the product that is sold to them, I will not be able to uh, miss sell. So I would say products need to be classified into complex and simple. Complex would be anything which has high lock-in uh, higher risk, higher volatility as many underlying products within them. So, you know, market link, debentures uh, and, you know, those type of things, which are more difficult to understand, derivatives, etc. If you segregate this, I think then that will remove the burden of having over-regulation in any category because we have one regulation which deals with everybody who is an advisor. Now I am dealing with a client who is starting to, I mean, young people who are just starting to invest or I am only doing financial plans or I am now dealing with clients who have, you know, 100 crores of asset and I am doing succession planning and a whole bunch of things for them. I think the quality of knowledge, uh, risk, etc. has to be different. So, remove that and you know, I have only the, the controls at the top end where the the risk or the impact could be the most. I think that's the reform that is needed, uh, frankly. And it's not a simple reform, but I think that will solve a lot of things.
0: Great, great. That's all for now in this episode, listeners. If you have any queries or suggestions, you can reach out to me on Twitter. My handle is at Satya Suntanam S-A-T-Y-A S-O-N T-A-N-A-M or you can also write to us at mintmoney at livemint.com. Bye-bye. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.